As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. Whatever you're doing, however you're creative, you're trying to get with it, buy it low. And you can slice it up however you want after that. But if you don't buy it low initially, you're squeezing blood from a stone for sure. Best ever listeners, do you want to make more money on your real estate projects? Well, I'm guessing that I'm hearing you say, oh yeah, baby. (laughs) Well, guess what, my friends? Today's best ever sponsor, Fund That Flip, is working with well, one of our previous best ever guests who has the most po- one of the most popular episodes, Jay Scott. If you aren't familiar with this episode, then go check that out, episode 217. If you are, because you're a loyal best ever listener, then you know that he knows how the heck to both analyze deals, especially flips, how to optimize the profits on those flips, and how to look at the market. Because of that, Fund That Flip, today's sponsor, has worked with him and put together a guide that is the seven tips to increase your real estate profits in today's market. Go check that out. Go get that guide. I've read through it myself. I've learned a lot of things from it, from how to analyze the market cycles, as well as how to optimize profits and not lose money or mitigate your risk for losing money on your deals. Go check it out. Fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. That's F-U-N-D-T-H-A-T-F-L-I-P.com forward slash best ever. You're going to learn the tools to better understand your local market and position your business for success. You're going to know how to analyze the real estate cycle and how to use short-term investing to capitalize on the market cycle and seven concrete actionable tips to make more money on your deals. Fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate podcast. With us today, we've got Ian Walsh. How you doing, Ian? I'm good, Joe. Well, that's great to hear. And a little bit about Ian. He is a partner at Hard Money PA, which is a private real estate lending company. He specializes in underwriting and evaluating residential investment properties. He formerly owned We Buy Homes to Fix.com, and he started Atlas Property Management, which he sold with his business partner, who I interviewed on the show and had a wonderful conversation with in 2015. He's been in real estate since 2008, and he's based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. 
You can say hi to him at hardmoneybankers.com. With that being said, Ian, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Yeah, it's pretty accurate. Started in the business wholesaling, didn't have any money back in 2008 out of school. And then, uh, as you mentioned with my partner, I had we built a wholesaling company and then that led to people asking for property management. I ended up building an Atlas property management, ended up selling that to TCS management. And I currently... Uh, partners with the guy that was on your show. They do a lot of lending in Maryland and so forth. I actually focus now on doing a lot of lending in the Philadelphia market. And I still help pretty frequently on the operations with, with TCS management. So it keeps me very busy. And we will start referring to him as the guy who's on my show. He no longer has a name. Yeah, it, yeah. It, best ever listeners, in case you're curious, it's Josh, episode 701, which aired just recently. So you can go listen to that interview. So let's talk about this. How do you make your money right now? So the majority of my income comes from lending. That was always the end game or trying to get to that position in, in real estate investing. So the majority of my income is from lending for sure. And that's from hardmoneybankers.com, that company? That's right. Yeah. So I'm a partner in Hard Money PA with Jason, who is, I'll use the name this time. It was Jason who was also on your show, but I don't know what episode it was, but, but yes, that's correct. Awesome. All right. The way that you make money is how within the lending? What are all the ways? So within lending, a lot of it's just creative, right? So I deal with a lot of flippers. I deal with guys that buy and hold too. The money is short-term capital. I'm not a bank. It's all privately raised. So particularly it's guys that come, hey, I want to flip something or I want to cross collateralize something. I need to close in five days. And the skill set that I guess I have to have in place, which came back from wholesaling and so forth is really the underwriting and making sure that the asset I'm getting involved with is is good. Because if I'm wrong on that end of it, you know, I'm taking a high risk loan. So I know my market very well. I know how to structure those deals. And so the money becomes the money that we make on that it typically is found in servicing or the points that we charge for it. Um, but that's the way the money is used. Flippers use us for short term capital, mostly. If I'm a flipper, what's the best way to get a loan approved and what's some pitfalls you've seen? A lot of companies make it more complicated than it has to be, without a doubt. If you're truly a hard money lender and you do asset-based lending, a flipper would come to me and say, literally all day long what I get is an email or phone call with, hey, this is the address, this is the construction numbers needed to bring it up to resale value, and here's how much I'm trying to buy it for. Where would you be on it? I'll look at it, I'll assess it. I'll shoot them a number back or I'll talk to them and say, hey, this is where I'd be on it. And if they'd say, that looks good to me, my answer is we're closing. We don't need W-2s. We don't need tax returns. We're just not a bank. It's very much based on that asset. When you say, where would you be at it? Will you elaborate on that exactly? I'm typically at, you know, six, oh, there's my dog. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, so typically I'm at 65% of the ARV uh -huh. when I'm underwriting something. So a $200,000 loan is going to be, you know, out at 130, would be my max range that I'd probably be at. And at that point I'm doing for construction and acquisition. So usually it would be something like somebody would come to me and say, Hey, I have a $70,000 loan. I want to do 40,000 in construction, puts them at one, 110 closing cost points, maybe puts them at 135, 140. I still like to see maybe 15 or 20% of the table, but I would be up to 130. So that when I say my number that I would shoot back at you, I'd be up to 130. Mm. That was pretty quick. I don't know if that was clear. Yeah, that's yeah. clear. Let's go over that a little slower though, because I'm going to take notes on it and some others might be as well. Do that 230 example again, will you? So if I have $200,000 as my ARV, my after repair value, my number in my head, I've determined, wow. okay, this is the resale. And at 200,000, I'm going to say, okay, 65% of that, I'm going to be at 130. And at 130, 
I'm going to back out the construction numbers and the acquisition price and where that's going to leave you. Let's say you have that contract for 70 grand. You want 40,000 in. So now you're at 110 and I'm still at 130, right? And the next question is, well, great. Can we do no money down and get in? And my answer is unfortunately, no, not with the way we do it. Mm -hmm. I like to see a little bit of skin in the game. So my max level would have been 130 that I'll go up to, but I might say, you know, I'm good at 110 because I want to see you come to the table, maybe 15, 20 grand, because I want you side by side with me in this deal. Mm-hmm. But that's how I would kind of analyze an underrated deal. That's the comfort level. Skin in the game and equity in a position really can offset the risk of what a bank would normally say, hey, you, your credit score isn't 700, it's 699. I can't do the deal. No, I don't care. You're at 620 versus 630 versus 640. doesn't matter because we're structuring it with cash and a solid position. Someone with a 300 credit score with skin in the game and an equity position with the deal, you'd lend to them? 300, good question. You're going to be bringing a lot more cash to the table than <laughs> score. So that's the best way we look at this in this business is that we offset risk with cash. So you can make you look as pretty as you want with your credit and your assets and all this. But at the end of the day, if I have a million dollar project, I do a 300 credit score, you've done some, some stuff not so hot, but I'll still find a number. So if you have a project at a million bucks and you say, hey, I need a hundred grand, my answer is fine. You have a huge amount to lose, way more than me in the event of that. Now, would I give you 65% of a million? No chance at 300 credit score. But could I could get a co-signer though or somebody to make the deal work? Sure. Or maybe other collateral that you own to buff it up? Certainly. So technically, yes, I can make it work. It's not as clean, but I could definitely make it work. Do you have to have a license to do this? No, we're not regulated. We're, it's private money, so it's not banking. It's not like SEC or any of that. We started a fund, so our model is not a fund model. That would be a different story. Our, our model is a one-to-one model. There's a couple of different terms for that. So our business is structured a little bit different. In order to do it then, do you just need access to money to lend, and then you just come up with whatever terms you want? In theory, yes, for sure. I mean, we have a very extensive back-end system in place to do it, so it is that easy. And some some people do. You know, local private lenders that maybe have three, 400 grand, they lend out and they make, they probably have to be within your competition's level, 10 to 15% on their money. But we do hundreds and hundreds of deals a year. You'd have to have a bankroll 30 million plus at least to make that make sense. So anybody can do it, but to do it of scale and volume and make sense financially, you'd want quite a few million to make sense of it. Let's say that we just had our conversation about a fix and flip I'm doing. You gave me the number. I said, cool, that works for me. What do you send over to me after that? So I'd send you, we call it an EUF and an LOI, which is the estimated use of funds and letter of intent, which is similar to probably what you would get at a bank, which just shows you a breakdown of, okay, this is what the costs are. This is what it's going to take to close. It kind of gives you like, a kind of looks like a preliminary HUD one or CD or whatever they call it nowadays. And then you'd also have a letter of intent, which says we're going to fund this thing. And that's what I'd send back to you. And once you have that, you know, we have somebody in our office who's fantastic. She's unbelievable what she does. And she coordinates constantly with all the title companies and says, you know, this is what we need and brings it right to closing for us. So that's how it is. There's not too much between, okay, we're moving forward. Here's your EUF and LOI and closing. It's it's pretty quick. Mm. What high level from high level? Because I know there's a lot of stuff I imagine. Are there a lot of documents? First, I'll ask that. I'll test my assumption. Good question. So that comes down to the type of lender you're dealing with. And I usually recommend to people find a local lender because what you find with your national lenders is that your national lenders are really just banks in disguise because they're being institutionally funded, which sounds sexy, but it's a dangerous position. So they are going to need, if you're dealing with a national lender, you're probably going to be dealing with 
very similar to bank underwriting. Then you're going to do your W-2s, bank statements, tax returns. With us, none of that. I literally need none of that. If I smell something doesn't, you know, isn't quite right, I might say, okay, you know what? Show me a bank statement. You're going to come to the table with this kind of money. Show me a bank statement. But really, if everything is in line, I'd say one out of 10 deals, I might need to see that. Other than that, if you have an LLC that you're buying within, you know, maybe your origination docs, I got to see who the partners are. But outside of that, there's not much to it, honestly. Knowing what you know from the lending side, what's something if you were fixing and flipping deals that you would make sure that you have prepared or you do that perhaps some fix and flippers that you've come across don't focus on as much? I'd say the two things. Majority of the deals that we don't do are because they're not deals. Because flippers or whoever, they bring a deal that they believe is a deal. But when I underwrite it, which has to be you know, the ultimate line of protection to the money is, hey, that's just not a deal. So a lot of times I would say whether it's a flipper or any investor, it's like you got to know your numbers. You've got to know that you're looking at a deal. You can't be guessing. Zillow is not going to tell you. You're not going to get the right information there. You need to have access to your local MLS system to get the real detailed information. So I would say know your numbers first. Really know what you're getting into. So if you call me up and tell me, hey, I think this thing's going to resell at 300 and I look at it and it's at 200 I know right away that I got a red flag up. I got a guy who doesn't know what he's talking about. If we're within 10% of one another, now we're talking. And then the second thing I would say to a flipper is your construction. Construction will make or break a good deal. Like I've seen really great deals get whittled down to nothing because people just think I'll go on whatever.com and hire a contractor and they're going to ask me for 50% down and bang, everything will work out just fine. It'll come out with a re- renovation and I'll be on TV and you know flip this house. It just doesn't work like that. So you really have to manage your contractors, know your contractors, spend the time to vet to get the proper contractor. And then when you have them, do whatever you got to do to keep them happy because that man or woman will let you sleep well at night. So between knowing your numbers and knowing your contractors, those are two major things that flippers get really right or I've seen get really wrong. Hmm. Any guidelines or, or tips that you have on the construction costs for keeping them low? I wouldn't say there's a way to keep them low so much as there's a way to buffer your On budget, stuff. right. Yeah. So two things, like never let your money get in front of the contractor. Meaning if you give somebody $4,000 and they've done $2,000 worth of work, assume that they're going to walk away and get hit by a bus and that 2000 is gone. So you never want to be in a position where you're going to lose money by putting too much money out. So a lot of my flippers will front material only or they'll have an understanding worked out that upon completion, I'm paying you in two weeks. So you really got to keep the money on your side and under control or else it can get out of control. The second thing would be there's always something in a flip where somebody's going to be in a position to knock down a wall and something's going to be there you didn't anticipate. So always build a buffer into your construction budget because if you're wrong, you make more money by being wrong. Hey, there were no surprises. If you're right, you anticipated it. If you didn't anticipate it, you're simply losing money. You might as well pay more money for the property up front. Is there a certain percentage or amount that you like to see whenever you're looking at deals that someone buffered? I can never really tell the true buffer what they're putting in, but what I can tell pretty quickly just by knowing my market, like certain areas, if you're in a certain area, I know that your project should be between say 45 and $60,000 in a four bed, two bath house in such and such neighborhood. I just know it's going to fall within there no matter what you think, paint carpet or not. If you're outside of that threshold, I'm going to say, why are you there? So if you're between 45 and 60, you've probably put the right buffer in there in that particular neighborhood, in a different neighborhood, maybe in South Philadelphia. I know it's a 60 or $70,000 renovation. That's just from experience. So if you're way outside, way under, I know you definitely didn't put that buffer in. If you're in that range, you probably did. If you're way above it, I'm probably wondering, 
either you put a nice extra buffer into it, but there's no real way that you, other than just experience with that one, knowing if that buffer is there. I, I just recommend people build it in though. It can only help you. And what's your best real estate investing advice ever? Without a doubt, buy low. It's cliche and it's the first thing you learn in this business, right? But you don't get killed in a 2008 scenario if you bought low enough. You get killed if you bought too high. You can screw up and have margin for error if you buy low enough, but you can't do it if you buy too high. So I would say the thing I learned the most from early on, which was good, because I just blindly trusted other guys that have been in the business for so long in watching their model was just whatever you're doing, however you're creative, you're trying to get with it, buy it low. And you can slice it up however you want after that. But if you don't buy it low initially, you're squeezing blood from a stone for sure. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's do it. All right, first a quick word from our best ever partners. If you're a wholesaler or wanting the wholesale, then you've got to check out this video. It's at wholesalinginc.com. It's a interview that Tom Kroll, and if you recognize Tom's name, well, that's because he was a guest on episode 395. He has documented his conversation with a motivated seller. So you hear from when he gets out of his car all the way to the very end when he's talking to the neighbors about different houses on the street. If you're into wholesaling or want to get into wholesaling, go listen to it. Go to wholesalinginc.com and go check that out. Best ever book you've read? Best ever book I read, uh, Richest Man in Babylon. Best ever personal growth experience and what would you learn from it? Selling to TCS management, going through that transition of selling a company with all the moving parts taught me so much about myself and in being inside of a business and the whole process is extremely growing in nature. What's one more specific thing that you learned from that process? Specifically from that process, make sure that everything is outlined up front. <laughs> Any kind of contract, whether you're doing a real estate transaction or you're doing a business transaction, don't leave anything gray because gray only leads to tension and things that have to be worked out. So know the deal you're getting into first, outline it clearly to avoid things down the road. Fortunately, nothing major came up, but looking back, I really realized if that was just simply outlined clearer in the contract, it wouldn't be any bumps right here. They work through it, but that certainly would be something to do. Know your deal and outline it first. Best ever real estate or business deal you've done? Um, I mean, my whole career has been a lot of singles and doubles. I mean, the home runs, I don't know, a home run for me would have been 30, 40,000 net on a deal. So it's nothing that crazy. So I wouldn't say there's one single best. I just do a lot of singles and doubles, but certainly selling that business was a big thumbs up in terms of biggest deal or, or what have you. And you're talking about when you sold Atlas? Oh, uh, the management company, yeah. Cool. Yeah. In, in episode 701, I talked to Ian's partner in detail about that. 701. It's a really, really good episode. Best ever way you like to give back? I like my contributions back to be personal. I like to help people for one. If people have questions, I like to help them avoid things that I've learned. But from a charity perspective, I like to find a direct cause and then help that cause direct. For instance, I, I decided to raise money by running a marathon and I found a girl that was suffering from life-threatening cancer and made my cause and the money go directly to her. So I like to give direct to a cause and I guess feel the impact of what I'm giving back to. And there's nothing wrong with giving to a general organization. Certainly nothing wrong with that. It just isn't how I do it. What's the biggest mistake you've made so far in real estate? In real estate into running a business, running a property management company, different times or different spots of growth. You'd overpay payroll, not knowing as you're growing because you're balancing. So it would be overpaying at payroll at times and then learning how to cut that back. That was a mistake, but mistakes you can grow out of. And I had actually thought on that. What was the other one that I had? 
Um, and when I was wholesaling back in the day, we were learning to market, right? Because this whole business is about marketing. Why you're doing this, why I'm on this podcast. So when I was wholesaling and learning it, we would spend a ton of money and not track our marketing, have closings, have a lot of closings when we were wholesaling. And then start cutting up the pie and realize how much we were just throwing at marketing without tracking our marketing, knowing what our marketing was going to. So we learned how to really tailor our marketing based on the mistakes we were making by just basically shotgunning without any kind of direction. Anybody that can learn, learn from that. The better you can track your marketing, you know, the better off you'll be. What's the best place the best ever listeners can reach you? Call me direct. That's fine. 215-839-3271. Email me. Use my hard money account. It's IAN at hardmoneybankers.com. Either of those are fine. Well, Ian, thank you for being on the show and sharing your advice with the best ever listeners and talking about many things all related to hard money lending from how you get into it to uh, your advice to fix and flippers. The two things that you mentioned, one is the majority of the deals you don't do actually aren't deals. So you got to know your numbers. Zillow is not the place to find that. You got to check out the MLS. And if you're within about 10% of each other, your analysis, their analysis, then it's about right. Additionally, the second thing, construction costs. That is the big bugaboo with fix and flips is going over on construction costs. So ensure that you have the buffer in place, what that buffer is. It's dependent on that market. So you really got to know the market and what you're doing for that house in that market. And as much as we like to put a percentage on, and I'm sure some fix and flippers do, but I suspect that percentage is based on their market and the stuff, the type of renovations they're doing, because there's all sorts of different types of renovations that we can do. But high level, just got to know the range that the budget should be in and then have a cushion accordingly. So thanks so much for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day, Ian, and we'll talk to you soon. Hey, Joe. Thanks. Fantastic. If you're a wholesaler or wanting to wholesale, then you've got to check out this video. It's at wholesalinginc.com. It's a interview that Tom Kroll, and if you recognize Tom's name, well, that's because he was a guest on episode 395. He has documented his conversation with a motivated seller. So you hear from when he gets out of his car all the way to the very end when he's talking to the neighbors about different houses on the street. If you're into wholesaling or want to get into wholesaling, go listen to it. Go to wholesalinginc.com and go check that out.